Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with an old friend and mentor, colleague on congressional staff, Jamie Galbraith, who has been a professor for many years at the LBJ School at the University of Texas in Austin. Done a tremendous amount of work on inequality, on the role of the state modern monetary theory, you name it, he's got a perspective on it, and usually a very fresh and innovative one. And as you know, the Institute for New Economic Thinking is meant to foment critical discourse, and he's a key ingredient, always has been since our inception. Jamie, welcome. Thank you very much, Rob. It's good to be with you. So here we are, pandemic, all kinds of craziness, climate change on the horizon. You guys... I, last week, I walked my dog and you were freezing while I was doing fine in New York. All kinds of things are upside down. All kinds of things, not surprising to people like you and I, are out of balance and disoriented. But what, what has surprised you? What have you been pleasantly surprised by? What have you been haunted by? What do you wish you were seeing in light of all the challenges that sit before us now? Well, uh, an economist is not normally pleasantly surprised by anything because the the discipline focuses one's attention on 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 the real problems, uh, and this is a very interesting time to be an economist if you have your eyes open and if your brain is still functioning, which is unfortunately a minority uh, situation in the field. Uh, but uh, if you go back. A dozen years, um, the period that we're living through, that we started living through, really, with the onset of the of the great financial crisis uh, in 2007, uh, is one which ought to be revolutionizing finally uh, the entire field, uh, because it is a series of uh, of of developments. Uh, for which the approaches that have been dominant for a generation or more. Uh, are completely inadequate. Uh, they were inadequate to, to either anticipate or to deal with uh, the financial meltdown. Uh, so they didn't incorporate uh, the uh, critical perspectives that go back to Keynes and Minsky uh, on, on, on those questions. Um, they did not uh, and have not um, been uh, an eff effective or useful in confronting uh, climate change because they do not incorporate uh, the kinds of, um, the, the basically the basic uh, 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 physics and biophysics of resources uh, and, uh, uh, and, um, the, and, and the capacity of the environment to absorb emissions, uh, which are fundamental uh, which are you know, raised in the early 1970s by Nicholas Georgescu Regan, and uh, but simply never, never uh, penetrated into mainstream economic discourse, um, and they uh, have, I think, utterly misrepresented the role of markets as against organizations and regulation in the society. So this is an area where, where my father's work over many years uh, is relevant. Uh, and uh, again, we have uh, uh, an economics profession which has basically laid aside the work of almost all of the truly important people of the previous period uh, and finds, it, finds itself incapable of dealing with, uh, with the crucial questions that, we're, uh, that we actually face. Yeah, yeah. So vis-a-vis, -vis, uh, how would I say, the Trump administration, and then the follow-on, the Biden administration here in the United States. Do you see Trump as a coincidence, an aberration, or did he somehow organically arise from the pressures and the despair that were going on in the economy? Yeah, I, well, I think it's clear that, that Trump himself was a symptom of developments that had been a long time, uh, a long time in the, in the works. Uh, one way to look at this is that uh, at the start of our careers, when we were both on 
on Capitol Hill, uh, mid-70s to the mid-80s in my case. Uh, this was a crucial moment uh, when the United States made a decision uh, through the implementation of monetary policy, that, through what Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan did, uh, to sacrifice its industrial uh, heartland to its financial sector. Uh, and what grew up out of that was an economy which is prosperous on on the East Coast uh, as a result of the uh, basically the the power of the global power of the financial sector, prosperous on the West Coast as a result of the uh, the development of advanced technology and, uh, and a number of other things, aerospace and uh, information aerospace entertainment on the West Coast. Uh, and in between, uh, in, in, in grave difficulty, and particularly the Midwest, the upper Midwest, the heartland, uh, has uh, simply not uh, effectively recovered uh, from, the, uh, uh, from, from that transition in the early 1980s. Uh, and the result of that is, of course, uh, people who are now, who were once working in, uh, uh, in that part of the country and are now probably mostly fairly elderly, uh, and uh, many others are very, very uh, disenchanted. Uh, and they were open, they were open to Donald Trump's uh, appeal, which uh, had an enormous amount of myth associated with it. Uh, but uh, the reason Trump was elected was that he was able uh, to um, bring over uh, a fair number of people who said to themselves, well, he's at least he's saying things that we understand that uh, the Democratic Party is not saying, and he is uh, rejecting things that the Democratic Party uh, has uh, perpetrated, including, of course, trading agreements and, and everything else from this period. It's not entirely fair to the Democrats because it really goes back to Reagan, but uh, it was a real phenomenon. Trump was the outcome of it, not the, not, not the progenitor. Yeah, and he, I remember saying, the system is rigged. It was like his mantra, the system is rigged. And everybody said, oh, I haven't heard that in a long time. People forget he beat 15 Republicans before. Yeah, I, haven't, beat, I haven't forgotten that. But, I, but, and I uh, I'll never forget a gentleman <laughs> who uh, has the Dilbert cartoon, Scott Adams, mm -hmm. wrote a blog post and gave a speech one time about how I took all these classes on hypnosis and learning and communications and he and Steve Jobs were friends and watch out for this guy Trump and about a month after finding that quizzical kind of you know wow Donald Trump this guy really thinks he's serious I watched him in Florida panel of 16 guys sitting next to Jeb Bush and Jeb Bush said something, criticized Trump, and everybody cheered. And Trump said something back, and everybody booed. And Trump looked at the TV camera, and he said, Ladies and gentlemen, you may think Jeb Bush was a popular governor here, and he was, and that's for some of the cheering. But what you got to understand is those people cheering and booing at this debate, they are the donors. Those are the people who are rigging the game here. Those are the Republicans who are getting paid for their support in politics, those are the people you and I have to defeat. And I just sat back and I said, wow, this guy wants the nomination for president and he just took on the RNC about oh, the no. donors. I said, this is a different cut of fish. He is breaking away from what I'll pay. No, there was no question they did. Comey. I think, I mean, I mean we're now in, in 2021 and I think Donald Trump is, my view is a spent political force. Uh, yes. that, uh, the general collapse that occurred over the last year uh, has uh, you know, drained the the aura that surrounded him That's and right. the, right. the the extraordinary uh, upheaval in in January uh, has got to have caused you know reflection even amongst some of them's most dedicated backers. Uh, but the underlying issues there are were were real, and uh, of course it took a certain amount of political talent, which was authentic, to exploit them. We're now in a new phase. Uh, all right, That's now, right. Now, well, now climate change was coming on stream as he was deregulating and defying the Paris Accord, and secondly, his tax cuts and deregulation were really what you might call a, a seduce and abandon, a bait and switch vis-a-vis -vis the people he inspired to vote for him. Oh yeah, I'm not so sure. I, I, I think what happened, if you look at the, at the um, broad aggregates, uh, was that there was a slow, steady 
uh, highly inertial expansion that began uh, after the after the financial crisis in 2009. Yes. And it continued at about that same pace. If it was losing steam early in the Trump term, it was probably sustained to a degree by the by the tax cuts. Mm -hmm. And that carried on until the early part of 2020 when the pandemic crushed it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the the, um, uh, the 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 important thing, though, is 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 not there. It's that a uh, the the formula that Trump uh, offered no longer carries any conviction. Uh, nobody believes that uh, we're going to have uh, a successful uh, development uh, of the economy from that foundation. Uh, and nobody believes that we're going to have a successful development from what came before. Right? Nobody, this, this, the, everybody understands that the reason we got Trump was that the, uh, in the Obama administration, uh, there was a kind of half-hearted, uh, insufficient uh, approach to a serious problem. There was not a structural approach. And, and of course, if there had been, it would have been, there wasn't the political capacity to get it enacted. Uh, so the fact that the uh, you know the Obama people pulled their punches uh, has created a situation which surprises me, uh, in which President Biden uh, has a, a margin of maneuver and a conviction about what needs to be done uh, that shows that he really did live through this period and 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 remembers it, uh, mm -hmm, which to mm -hmm. me is very much to his credit because we're now seeing right. even from some of the same people uh, a very different. Uh, uh, approach. They're they're saying in effect, we have to put forward a program which is adequate to the challenges that we face, and we'll do it in two phases. We will get people through the pandemic with a very substantial program of income support and uh, support for state and local governments and this kind of thing, and then we'll move and we'll try and deal with with the larger structural questions which are going to uh, which which we're going to face. This, to me, is it, it's a major breakthrough in thinking, at least for Democrats. Uh, one of the things one remembers, uh, and again, it's it's good to be uh, on the on this with a with a with a fellow um, geezer, uh, because we we're old enough to remember uh, that uh, in 1981, when Ronald Reagan uh, and his crew came in, they demanded the moon. They, they, they put, put forward a tax cut, which was their major agenda. That was one third of the income tax, roughly. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, and they put forward- and company. Yeah, the supply exactly. side. Yeah, yeah no, they, that, was, that, was, that was froth. Murray Wiedenbaum, who was Reagan's economic, chief economic advisor said, you know, to friends, to liberal friends, he said, well, we're really clever. We've got our Keynesian stimulus in place before <laughs> they knew our reelection. Uh, you yeah. know, they knew what yeah. they were doing. But yes. the point was they got a very big program through the Congress, plus a very big increase in the military budget. So it's a Keynesianism on both sides. And when it proved to be more than they needed, well, they, they were able to make some concessions and you got tax increases in 82 and 84. That uh, were actually very large by historical yeah, standards. Graham Rudman, Hollings and- uh, Well, DEFRA and DEFRA, yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 yeah, these, yeah, these two tax bills. Um, and then ultimately the tax reform of 86. But the things that they did in, before he was reelected were substantial. Um, and, you know, they could give that back. So they looked, they, they won coming and going. Uh, that's a political lesson which Joe Biden is old enough and has been around long enough to have recognized. And it really transformed things to have the Democrats playing this game, saying, we're going to go and, and do it. Uh, we're going to put the, the kitchen sink into this. We're going to put everything we have on the table. Uh, and, uh, you know, when we get it, if it turns out, I don't think there will be a problem, uh, frankly, uh, because the whole notion that there we're in some kind of you know inflation inflation prone situation is absurd, to my mind. But uh, if there were such a problem, you can deal with it when the problem comes up. Deal with the problem that's in front of you and don't anticipate ones that might or might not emerge in three or four years. That's, right. I mean, that's, that's a sensible. Especially when the pendulum of distribution meaning profit share relative to labor share, the pendulum has rocked so far in one direction that if you compressed profit with wages coming up, it wouldn't necessarily lead to inflation for quite some time.
Well, I mean, the, the inflation is a when prices are now set and as they were not in the 1970s on a worldwide basis, energy prices, prices for consumer goods come in from uh, imported from the rest of the world. Uh, food prices are uh, this is a world market. Uh, so the ability of the United States to generate inflation is just much less. Uh, and then back back in the day, uh, we had a, uh, a you know there was a dynamic of wages and prices as a result of uh, union wage settlements and the price of things like automobiles uh, that were affected by union wage settlements. And those those things are no longer major factors in the U.S. economy. So. Uh, and then, then there's the fact that almost all of our jobs are services jobs, and until service workers don't have any 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 very much wage uh, setting power, so it's just a different. It's a non-inflationary situation. Uh, the one price that can go up is land, but land is not counted as in the price indices, so it's it's not good price land and stock values and so forth. But those things are 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 uh, they don't they don't show up as part of the consumer price index anyway. So it it's very very cr silly to be holding on to a model, uh, um, the so-called Phillips curve that was generated in 1960 in an entirely different world. Uh, that as as a basis for thinking about how things are going to happen now. Well, you've been doing work, systematic work, for a very long time now on the questions of inequality. And I know it's very evidence-based, very empirical. What kind of things have you seen change, say, since the time Bill Clinton came into power, 1992 to the present, which is 28 years what what's what are the structures like you mentioned? More service workers, more uh, how we say price setting in the world economy, globalization, probably a deterioration of unions. But paint a picture for us of what's what's going on with inequality. Let's start with the United States and the and the, the turning point that you uh, mentioned is a pretty good place to start. Uh, what happened in that period was a bifurcation of the American economy. Uh, and you can see it very clearly if you look at the data as we do by region or by sector, uh, that uh, the stratospheric incomes that define American income inequality were generated in banking. Uh, they were generated in, in, in finance, generally speaking, uh, and they were generated in the technology sector, which was a creature of the financial sector. It was uh, and then how how is that done? That is done through IPOs and through uh, cap basically through capital asset valuations. And you look at this and you say, I got this a small number of people with an amazing amount of income, and that's what inequality is. Uh, we did a calculation for the late 1990s uh, using uh, um, income recorded by county, that's tax data. Uh, and we found that if you took out five counties uh, that um, uh, from the data and pretended that what had happened there hadn't happened, the inequality across counties would, for, you know, for those last years of the 1990s, would have fallen by half. On uh, those five counties, big surprise. Well, what were they? They were where, where you may be sitting, New York, New York, Right, uh, and then uh, uh, three counties in Northern California: San Francisco, Santa Clara, and San Mateo, and one county in Washington State, King County, which is Microsoft. I mean, it's just extremely straightforward what was happening. Uh, so that's probably the, Fairfield County in Connecticut, which was a commuter to New York. Yeah, that's in the, the that's in the top fifteen, I'm sure. But uh, but at least five. He took out fifteen. It, it was basically the whole of it. Uh, you didn't get any increase in. So what was happening was 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 enormously concentrated. Uh, um, capital asset um, uh, inflation, if you like. Uh, and then you can look at the pattern in later years. It differs uh, defense contractors and real estate and so forth, depending on what's going on. Uh, but okay, so that's the United States, by and, by and large, a tremendous bifurcation as a result of the structural change in the economy, with most people working in the service sector just not seeing uh, you know, the, anything, not seeing much change, really, not seeing any great increases, uh, maybe not seeing enormous decreases either, but there are certainly the level of inequality went up dramatically. Okay, the bigger story is the world as a whole. Uh, and what we, uh, you know, were able to establish, and this is the real, I think, innovation and important aspect of our work, is that uh, the, um, 
uh, you look at this at the pattern of evidence for the for countries around the world, and we have um, about 150 countries in the data set going back to the 60s, uh, and you can see that the pattern of rise of inequality is driven by global finance. It's uh, you can see this in um, uh, in the early 1980s, inequality goes up in the countries that are hit by the by the debt crisis. Late 1980s, early 1990s, it's the countries of the formerly socialist bloc that were collapsing. Of course, inequality went up like a rocket there. And then in the 1990s onward, it's in Asia, which was undergoing liberalization. So where countries liberalized, where they were exposed to international finance, where they were hit by debt crises, inequality goes up. Uh, and in the after 2000, there's at least a pause of 12, 15 years uh, because a lot of countries retreated from the neoliberal model and they had strong commodity prices. So you can see this as basically a global macroeconomic phenomenon. And that's 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 the the interesting thing, because if you ask what the literature says about inequality, it's all about labor markets. It's all about technology, education, trade in one specific place and some other specific place. Uh, and they never tie the story together to show a pattern that's that's determined across large regions, continents, or the world as a whole. But frankly, inequality is generated at the level of the world as a whole. And that then comes back to my, my basic view, which is that you know if you if you don't start your analysis of the uh, world from a standpoint of a essentially monetary analysis rooted in Keynes, uh, you're not going to understand very much. And Hyman Minsky, how would I say, had been prescient in that Keynesian kind of way, innovative himself, and wasn't really recognized until it was it had fully blossomed. Then people acknowledged his brilliance much more. They're, they're, they've acknowledged it, but uh, the, the question the, the the question I would ask is, uh, going again, going back to the to the financial crisis, it's been thirteen years. How many of the people? who were right about this, who had the right methodological perspective and who you know, warned in advance that the financial system was unstable, how many of them have been given appointments at the so-called top economics departments? The answer is zero. They haven't done it. Uh, uh, you know, a few people who were already there occasionally give kind of a lip service nod, but frankly, the, people, the jobs still go to people who were, who were wrong before and who are, uh, you know, essentially clueless about what's going on now. And that to me tells you that the, that the profession is still in profound need of reform. Yeah, I experienced some of that tension uh, as an undergraduate at MIT, because I started out wanting to be a naval architect and was inspired to send, to add a second major by a man named Charles Kindleberger. And I watched as he went to emeritus status and so forth, how much resistance there was to him. And he was a very vital, cheerful man. He was, you know, vivacious, a lot of fun, took all of us out to breakfast and music performances. And he was a kind of a Pied Piper-like person. Oh, he was, he was an absolutely wonderful man and a, and a yeah. very profound scholar and someone who had done something in the world. He had been, he had been involved in intelligence activities in the war. The Marshall uh, Plan and, and, and the Marshall Fed Plan. and all of that. Yeah, yep, yeah. Yep. You know, I, I have to just tell you that uh, Elspeth Rostow, whom I dearly loved, was uh, very fond of of, of uh, recounting an encounter with Kendallberger just outside a, a faculty meeting at MIT in the fifties when uh, it was it, it was at, the, at that point Walt Rostow was was doing some consulting for the uh, for the government and Charlie came out and said Elspeth. They're saying terrible things about your husband. They're saying he's putting country above party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. But yeah, yes, I mean, the the and this of course happened at, at Harvard, uh, which was in a period of, of that was very disillusioning for all of the original minds who were in the economics department in the late 60s, early 70s. My father, Vasily Leontief, uh, Albert Hirschman, uh, and people left. Uh, and what they left in the, these in institutions in the hands of were, were people who were narrow, fairly dull, conventional, and who enforced a kind of conventional thinking on the whole profession. 
and that's where we are. i mean, and fundamentally, i don't think it can be fixed. i think that what universities have to do is to start new departments and set up separate career paths for people who can actually organize things. but of course, they're doing the reverse. i mean, i just got a you know, when this in the u k, i just got an appeal from the university of leicester, which is losing where where it has a critical studies division in its business school, and they're all being they're made redundant in favor of in favor of some conventional groups. i mean, this this is this this is what we're dealing with. space needs to be made for free thought and new analysis, or it will simply be, you know, it will go on until the few of us who are around who still believe these things are no longer uh, no longer active. Yeah. Well, it seems quite sterile, and uh, it seems in looking at the history of ideas, it's often the case that when things do not cohere, and therefore the paradigm is suspect, People circle the wagons and become more militantly defensive about the orthodoxy. Yes, they do. They, yes, they, they don't do. evolve. Yeah. They move backwards. The famous philosopher Stephen Toulmin talked about after the Thirty Years' War, everybody went to this Cartesian Enlightenment abstraction to avoid combat that would get their heads cut off. And he said eventually they applied it to the social science, and then it didn't work. But when we had World War One, the Great Depression, and start of World War Two. These people all went backwards in the 60s, civil rights and uh, the uh, various different progressive movements and so forth started forward. And then the reaction that what I'll call the nostalgic reaction associated with Ronald Reagan took hold. And, right. And, right. Uh, Although it, 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 in it, academic it, life, it, it, it was settling in a decade before that, before Reagan, it was early 70s. Yeah, I, I like to say that there, you know, there's a kind of pseudo distinction in the mainstream between freshwater economics and saltwater economics. Freshwater economics, University of Chicago, the market purists, saltwater economics, which is flaws and frictions, uh, kind of, they, they're basically the same theory, but with a little bit of of, uh, of, of of sand thrown in the gears so that you can have policy leverage on it. Uh, but both of them, both freshwater and saltwater are basically sterile. Uh, and the evolution occurs in the backwaters. So I consider that that it's a you know a real alert people uh, who want to think freshly. They that we, we live in the backwaters of economics. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. and the the notion of multidisciplinary thinking seems to be something they guard against. Uh, I'm always reminded of the famous article in the 1920s by H. L. Mencken called The Dismal Science. And he said, the only people I trust less than theologians are economists. Well, I don't know what it, distinction he was drawing between <laughs> theologians and economists. Uh, but yeah, uh, the, uh, that's definitely the case. Uh, and further thought on the, the reason why they, they don't like multidisciplinarity is that, and it's precisely related to this affinity be, with, between theology and economics, is that other social sciences and real sciences are all they all share a certain common perspective which is rooted in physical laws it's rooted in in thermodynamics and 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 the biological theory of evolution it's rooted in real time it's rooted in processes of change that's what people study uh, and economists don't do that. They they study equilibrium systems, which is the idea that they can actually tell how the how the world is, what direction it's going in, and where it's going to end up. And the people who think that way are theologians. Uh, that's an 18th century viewpoint, which went out in the middle of the 19th century with Darwin, and they, everybody else hasn't looked back. So if you let other disciplines uh, interact with economics. It's first of all, it's very confrontational, and secondly, it's really corrosive to the stability of the economics profession, which we just can't withstand comparison with real sciences. Yeah, I always tell the story of uh, when I showed up at college at MIT. I had grown up in Detroit, which was a cauldron. You know, any how we say civil rights riots, the death of Martin Luther King all kinds of labor management turbulence, uh, Walter Ruther's plane being blown up, all kinds of uh, 
very, very hostile things. You know, the Port Huron Statement was written in Ann Arbor. Uh, and so I'm watching that and I come to college and the guys who's teaching my first micro course is talking about equilibrium. And I wasn't trying to be a smart ass or snarky or anything. I was, you know, green. I was 18 years old. I raised my hand and I said, isn't that like assuming a happy ending? And it was so foreign to me that that would be the basis for understanding the economics because growing up in Detroit, it didn't get better. I, I'm, I, I'm, surpri I'm surprised they let you continue in that class. <laughs> well, they thought I was a major in naval architecture. They didn't think I was going to come. To, so I was just brushed aside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was, of course, the experience. The, that was what the first year class was there for, was to just to weed out people who uh, who who found this uh, cognitive dissonant. Uh, I've avoided this obviously partly because of family background and partly because I, I, I minced my way through undergraduate uh, education in social studies at Harvard and, and uh, you know, only took the applied advanced economics classes, which by the way is something I recommend to anybody who wants to actually study the field, stick to the low prestige activities economic history, economic policy, economic statistics. There are many interesting things to be done in those fields. Uh, the problem is, of course, they're, those, they're, they're not the ones that are going to get you uh, high. Yeah. Uh, the high church high, of game theory. High and, church uh, jobs, exactly. Uh, yeah. But still, that's where, the, that's where the real scientific work and the real advances yeah. are going to come from, in my view. Yeah, where you, where you probably can understand the which you might call the anthropology of the profession, is studying the lists of John Bates, Clark, and Nobel Prize winners at any given time. And it's been very, what I'll call, game theoretic and abstract for quite some time now. Oh, sure. I mean, it's, uh, yes, I, I wouldn't spend a lot of time on that activity, but uh, a little bit will, <laughs> will lead you <laughs> to a very clear conclusion. Well, it can tell you what you don't want to be and what you do want to be, and so you, you, can, you can make your choices there. So in Texas... You've just been through uh, what you might call a vivid breakdown in the infrastructure, the social system, and how would I put it? I'll bet you guys had a big run to the sporting goods store to buy hockey skates and things like that. Uh, what what happened in Texas? What 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 really broke the electrical system and the hospitals and everything? What what broke this the system was the uh, structure of the electricity market as established by free market economists, including uh, one in particular who took credit for the design, a guy by the name of Professor William Hogan of the Kennedy School at Harvard, uh, who was quoted in the New York Times reportedly saying that the system was working as designed. And I think he was right. Uh, it was working exactly as it was designed. It was designed uh, to the benefit of the generating companies, to the benefit of the uh, fossil fuel companies, and to the benefit of the politicians that they funded. Uh, and we had a mythology of uh, free market competition. And what Texans learned was, what does that mean in practice? What it means in practice is that Without regulatory uh, standards, uh, the generating companies try to do everything on the cheap. Uh, and so they don't weatherize um, because after all, Texas is warm most of the time. And a hard freeze like this maybe happens once a decade. So, you know, the nine years and 51 weeks out of the decade, uh, they get away with it. Uh, but then that one week happens when they don't. And uh, when they don't, two things happen. Uh, one, one is that you, you get an increase in demand because demand is extremely inelastic. Uh, it doesn't respond to price, but it does respond to weather. Uh, and secondly, you get a collapse of supply uh, because the, the, the equipment freezed up, uh, froze up. Uh, and that was mostly na uh, natural gas, some uh, renewables as well, but mostly natural gas, all of which could and should have been weatherized because uh, obviously most of the country knows how to weatherize electrical equipment. Chicago doesn't freeze up in a bad storm. Uh, uh, so it's not like it's rocket science. It just wasn't done because the companies didn't want to do it and they weren't made to. 
And the result of that, since electrical demand and supply have to balance, it's not a question of the prices making them balance, they have to balance. When the supply falls off, they had to cut everybody out. Uh, and then there's another problem. Then you go over to what is essentially necessarily a kind of socialist uh, allocation of the supplies. Uh, that tells you you have critical infrastructure, hospitals in particular, and they tend to be concentrated. I happen to live right amongst a bunch of hospitals, and so my electric lines stayed live. I didn't lose power because I share lines with hospitals. But the fact that I had that good fortune meant that many people in the city didn't get power back at all for days, days and days, 60 hours from four days sometimes. Uh, and if you don't do that and the temperatures between 10 and 20 degrees or below 10 degrees Fahrenheit, your pipes freeze. And so enormous costs, destruction of people's homes uh, and just damage, water damage, uh, as well as the psychological damage. And in some cases, the physical damage is simply being dark and cold and hungry uh, uh, was uh, inflicted on people as a result of this system. Uh, it was an absolutely textbook case in how free markets break down if there's not adequate regulation. And the uh, context of the lockdown and the pandemic, where what you might call the anxiety is already at the top of the charts, that, that makes it very, very dis disorienting. And, and it, the, the pandemic certainly complicated things to a, to a degree. It, I'm sure that's true. Uh, but I have to say, I, I, I was impressed by the extent to which people were prepared to step out and take risks. Uh, the or response of ordinary people was really, really remarkable. But, you know, you are just talking about a lot of people who, are, who have no place to go and, and huddle in the dark. Uh, they... Now, uh, we talked a little bit earlier just about the themes related to inequality and their cause, but the inequality in the access or the quality of health care is another theme that we hear a lot about these days. In, uh, is that just he who has money can buy or what, what's, the, what's the nature of the challenge, especially when, uh, how would I say, you being infected harms me. There's a, there's a profound externality in this system. What do we need to do to put things on a better platform, both from a humanistic point of view and a recognition of our interdependence? Well, one, one way to look at this is to uh, ask about which countries handled this pandemic uh, effectively and which did not. Uh, and what you find, of course, is that the countries that did, um, and some of them are socialists and some of them are capitalists, uh, what they had in common was a, that they had maintained public health uh, capacity. Uh, so they were ready on the first day, which like the 3rd of January, when the r first reports came in, they were ready to close their airports. They were ready to mobilize, uh, you know, cabinet committees uh, and to set up, set up protocols for, for, for acting on this. That was true. And that uh, was true in um, uh, Korea. It was true in Taiwan. It was true in Singapore. Hong Kong was true uh, in, on the, within a few days in, the, in mainland China itself. Um, it's true in Vietnam. Uh, and those countries actually suppressed the virus. New Zealand uh, did too. And then you have the, then you have the countries uh, which are wealthier by and large, uh, like ourselves, the British, uh, and some of the Europeans, uh, where the healthcare system is uh, highly structured to the kinds of ailments that rich people, rich populations have, chronic diseases, diabetes, uh, heart diseases, and so forth. And does not, then where the public health element was very, very run down. People, you know, public health was a very minor piece of medical education. The funding for it was, 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 was cut. The preparatory committee in the White House had been dissolved. Uh, and so they had nothing to offer uh, except turn it over to a very decentralized system of governors and mayors to try and manage uh, and um, call on private corporations to do what they could. Uh, and um, and they, the, the, the thing fell apart. And so we got we got clobbered. And the best we could do was to keep it from being keep it from going to the whole population all at once. Uh, but we couldn't we, we, we could only slow the spread 
and lost a half a million people so far, uh, waiting for the vaccines to come and 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 put an end to it. Uh, a terrible uh, example. Uh, so what we need to do is to realize that we're not immune from public health crises, and we need to have a public health service. Um, now, the other issue that you were talking about is paying for people's health care. That's, of course, another separate issue. And obviously, we need to have uh, you know, the whole business of, of private health insurance is not up to dealing with the kinds of problems that we have. So I'm all in favor of, 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 of a single payer system. Uh, but uh, a single payer system is not itself adequate to deal with a public health crisis. You need to have you need to have the capacity to mobilize the population uh, to um, to handle you know all of the kinds of behavioral changes and uh, protective measures that are necessary. Uh, and some countries did. It's it, we can we can see that some countries did it, uh, and what and what they got for it what they got was was you know fatality rates that were in the hundreds or the low thousands, not five hundred thousand, and for and, populations. And if yeah. in the event that you were what we call a fiscal hawk, they locked down and their economies came back sooner. Correct. And so the need for fiscal stimulus was of less depth and shorter duration. That's that's absolutely correct. I mean, they, they realized that if you de dealt with the public health problem, you can get the economy back. We got the worst. We, we stalled. And it's an exponential process. It's, you know, the thing multiplies it. So the, the, a few days, a few weeks, and you are in very deep trouble because it moves very fast on you. So you have to move quickly. You have to move in an uncompromising way. Uh, and then you've got the benefit that you grow out of it much sooner. Uh, that's, I think that's, that, that's a, a, clear, a clear lesson that even an economist can, can absorb. Yes. So I, I, almost every time I talk to people in the context of a podcast or a research webinar now, Climate change has moved to the fore. And some were concerned that the fiscal spending on the pandemic would somehow uh, obviate or, or obstruct addressing the climate issue. Others have said, now that we see everything's broken, we got to fix everything. So we got to get down to it. But the kind of what you might call coordination, collaboration, collective action, within nations and across nations and taking on vested interests in a world of money politics, some of the themes you and I have touched on as like as we've been skipping across the stones uh, today, how do you, how, if you were walking into Joe Biden's office tonight, what would you say? How are we gonna deal with climate change? How are we gonna make sure our sons and daughters and grandchildren have a place to live? Okay, the first thing is that this is not a problem that is constrained or can be constrained by the short-term economic issues. Uh, one, one has to find the resources and one has to deploy those resources in an orderly way. The second thing is, uh, even more important, is this is a global issue. It's a global issue which has to be dealt with by the uh, large economies that, can, that have the capacity to act. Uh, and some of those economies, some of those countries, uh, we need to work out a way to live with them. Uh, we need to work out a way. This is a foreign policy question. Uh, it is. It flies fundamentally in the face of a lot of talk going around about how we need to to confront and uh, China and confront Russia and uh, encircle them and aim aim for the for the defeat of the. Uh, of 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 China, the way we aim for the defeat of of the Soviet Union, this is a dangerous form of nonsense. First of all, it's unachievable, and secondly, it is of no importance uh, as an objective, in comparison with getting the world on um, on on a, a track to mitigate and uh, deal with the climate crisis. So we, we're faced with a with a physical imperative that we have to forge a, a path forward with countries that we don't like and countries that we do like, uh, with allies and with what we're describing as adversaries. Uh, and uh, we have a common interest in this. Uh, that's important. That should be the first priority of our foreign policy. 
Uh, if I were advising President Biden, I would say watch out for some of the people around you because they're building their careers on, um, I don't know, basically scare talk and warmongering and, and, and building up a military budget, which is actually taking real resources from the issues you need to deal with. I mean, many of these resources are, in fact, advanced technologies. They are specialists and their materials, which need to be deployed to deal massively with the problem we have. Uh, and not to go down what are essentially a budget into budget categories that have been around since the Second World War and since the Cold War were no longer relevant to national security. Yeah, I just did a uh, three-part video for my Young Scholars Initiative with Daniel Ellsberg, who was talking about the enormous stocks of weapons that still exist on both sides and around the world, and what has been discovered, I believe, in the 1980s is something they call the nuclear winner, which is the, if a large number of these bombs blow up, the fires that they cause destroy the upper atmosphere and send us into an ice age. And while the bombs would kill 600 million to a billion people in a violent conflict, 6 billion people would die from the nuclear winter. And he's not, saying not just the people, but all the other uh, all the animals, all the, the animals, the and most yeah, of the life. plants too. Yeah. Now you're looking everything you're looking, except in the ocean. In some parts of the ocean would be the only thing that would survive. And and what he said was essentially, we got to do this to remove this risk from mankind. But the second thing is we can use the savings by what I'll call denuding the military-industrial complex, at least in this dimension, so the resources can be used to deal with climate change. And that's doubly healthy. Well, we are, we're, we're, right now we're spending a, upwards of a trillion dollars on a, over 10 years or more on, on so-called modernization of the nuclear arsenal. You don't need a modernized nuclear arsenal. You need to get rid of the damn nuclear arsenal. Right? Uh, I, uh, countries, if you keep a few of them around for... Uh, psychological effect, that's, that's not the worst thing. But the, the idea that you should uh, be designing weapons that you think you might use, these are weapons which cannot be used. I mean, here, here, here one has to, again, uh, I don't know about you, Rob, but in many respects, I've softened a lot on the memory of Ronald Reagan. Uh, Reagan was prepared to say that these are weapons with nuclear war can it cannot be won and it must never be fought. Uh, and other people had said that before, but when Reagan said it, uh, he carried the authority of someone who had had you know had had followers who believed differently. This is crucial, uh, and that we need we need to we need to get control of this process in the in, the, in this country as well. I heard a story recently about a private airplane flight where Gorbachev and Reagan were flying together with a handful of other people. And they were baiting each other about the flaws of capitalism and the flaws of communism and so forth. And then Reagan stood up and he let out like a yell, like a scream, and he said, this isn't working. And he went up into the restroom, shut the door, turned right around, came back out, and he said, hi, Mikhail, I'm Ronald Reagan. I think we can work together to reduce nuclear weapons on Earth, and we'll both be proud of that. And everybody laughed and cheered, and then they sat down and went to work. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, Reagan he, had been sending uh, handwritten letters to Gorbachev, uh, which were published by uh, Martin and Annalisa Anderson some years ago. And actually, it was in 2010. I picked up a copy on the way out of Dallas Airport to go meet with Gorbachev and took it to him, uh, which is very interesting. Uh, and... Oh, it was really, but I'll tell you uh, for the benefit of the audience uh, how I opened my, uh, my, my presentation of a little paper I was giving at this small seminar that he was chairing. I said, Mr. Mr. President, uh, when Homer returns uh, to write the story of our, of our time, he will say uh, that the uh, Russian ma mathematicians sailed, set forth from Muscovy in 1991 and presented themselves before the gates of Wall Street, uh, bearing the gift of quantitative risk management models. And they were welcomed with joy, uh, and they set to work. And within a, within a dozen years or so, they had uh, 20 years, they had uh, destroyed the whole thing. And Homer, Homer will write that this was the this was the greatest Trojan horse operation since Troy itself. <laughs> uh, and Mr. President, you will be get credit not only for the destruction of Soviet communism, but also for the demise of Western financial capitalism. And he looked back to me and said, I've been accused of worse. 
<laughs> That's fantastic. What was the name of the organization that you headed up on security related? Economists for Peace and Security, uh, which is a, a it's a professional organization which uh, tries to bring a, put a roof over the head of those economists who are working on these issues. Uh, it's had a bit of a dormant period. It's coming back now under the chairmanship of Linda Bilmes uh, at Harvard. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, uh, she's a grantee of INET. I've done yeah, some work. Yeah, with and she yeah. uh, they they she's worked a lot on the cost of war with Joe Stiglitz. Uh, so I, I'm hopeful that that APS will 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 be in the in the thick of things on this, this these issues as well in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's unbelievable. But uh, I loved your story of the Trojan horse there and uh, the Homer Homer's uh, next act. Odysseus uh, will has nothing to brag about in comparison to Gorbachev. <laughs> the uh, so Jamie, what what do you when you look right now, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of despondency. People like John W. Gardner in his book, The Recovery of Confidence, talked about how when people are afraid, they pull back. We talked about that in another context related to ideas. What, what can the leaders of the G20, what can the Biden administration, what can they put down right now? that makes sure we don't go back to the dreadful anxiety and fear that has been present the last, say, the 18 months before uh, the last presidential election in America. What, what, what's, what's your recipe for healing? Well, I think, first of all, the, the leaders of the G20 and all of us need to recognize uh, that the world uh, is different from what it was, that the formulas, political formulas that worked in the Cold War aren't going to work, uh, and that uh, nobody's going to go along with them anymore. Uh, this is primarily a problem of adjusting the viewpoint in the United States, because uh, if you go to Europe, uh, you go to Asia, people can tell. People will tell you this. You don't have to. You don't have to. It's not, not news to them. It is news in our uh, elite circles, and people need to need to wake up uh, in terms of the you know the, the your listeners and people who are uh, engaged uh, to me this is a moment when there are real possibilities because it's just at the time when you recognize uh, that what we have before isn't working and begin to understand the reasons why it wasn't working why the whole neoliberal confection was a fraud uh, and what needs and the kind of coordination and the kind of uh, of dealing with but both the insecurity and precarity that people face and dealing with uh, the technical problems of uh, the environmental problems that we all face dealing with the need to rebuild uh, our cities our infrastructure restore a quality of life in a way that's sustainable all these things have to be thought through fresh and so we go back and say okay what do we study well let's study the new deal uh the new deal actually this was a period when this happened before uh and you can think say okay what kinds of initiatives were, do we need it's not going to be the same uh, but the but it's not unprecedented in human history to deal with with catastrophic problems um and most important uh even before all of that we just need to consolidate our thinking. This is what INET is there for, the Institute for New Economic Thinking. We need new economic thinking, or at least different economic thinking than the dominant economic thinking. And if we have that and it spreads around a bit, uh, then you know the, the leadership will begin to have to respond to it. Uh, I, um, you know, or, or perhaps the leadership will be replaced by people who have a better understanding. Um, but as I say, I, I, at least so far in this administration, uh, the, the opening of uh, ideas on the economic front has been, I think, quite impressive. Uh, uh, I mean, I, you know, it was, it, to hear the, the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board speak so emphatically about the need to go back to both full employment and, and, and price stability uh, tells me that, you know, when we wrote the Humphrey Hawkins bill uh, in 1976, for, passed in 1978, uh, that put that mandate in the, uh, on the Fed, and I was, I was in the drafting group that did that, uh, you know, we were on the right track and the economics professions are to tut-tutted and tried to ignore this for so many decades. But now people recognize it was the right thing to do. 
uh, and that gives me some, you know, hope that you 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 can uh, you can in fact sort of change the the the, the general consensus, the general view of how to how to approach things, and move to a much more activist uh, and pragmatic uh, approach to the whole range of problems that we have. Okay, I'm being the I'm being the optimist. I, I, I'm not I'm not normally this optimistic, but uh, uh, once 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 every you know I don't know 15 or 20 years I allow myself a brief moment when I think well maybe they finally get it and we'll we'll, we'll start making some progress. Yeah, well I think, and you're my mutual friend Tom Ferguson, who's the research director, uh, would say that uh, the how would I say the impetus to create broader based prosperity and so forth is there. But will the money system in politics allow people to survive who have what you might call more noble motives? And on the other side, given the outrage, will the system not just break down if they continue to fortify that narrow constellation of plutocrats and allow them to keep their money offshore and then tell everybody they can't afford it? It's hard to maintain an optimistic uh, frame of mind when you have to deal with Tom Ferguson. I don't know how you would do it, Robert. But yeah, I've had this experience. Almost anything you can say, he'll he will he's capable of deflating. But but you and I maintain somehow maintain our equilibrium and our forward motion in spite of in spite of Tom's wisdom on these matters, which un, is and unfortunately Tom's is always unfortunately unfortunately he has a pretty good track record. But we keep hoping that he'll be yeah. proven wrong. Yeah, he says, if you want a happy ending, go watch a Disney movie. <laughs> but I think, I, I think his diagnosis of the maladies, going back to, say, the book The Hidden Election or Right Turn or whatever, has been quite lucid. And, oh, yeah. I, mean, I do no, think... Tom's I, had I profound effect on, on, on political science, political scientists who are actually paying attention, because, of course, this is a, a game played by people with money uh, who form coalitions. Uh, and, and in some respects, that's what you have to do, um, but also moments when you have to kind of kick everybody in the shins and see if you can make some any event my my, my mantra is 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 goes back to to uh, william of orange uh that it is not necessary to hope in order to persevere uh the, the uh the, 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 the working on these problems is in some respects you don't 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 expect a reward and then you're not disappointed when you're not rewarded um and you just carry on and do what you can what do they say? I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic. Right. Well, that's what, that was. That was that, yeah. was. that was William of Orange in a nutshell. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts? I uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you, as always. And uh, I wondered if there are there any closing thoughts you want to share with our audience uh, before we sign off. Um. Yeah. I mean, to my mind. Uh, just to come back to the to the role of economics and economic thinking, uh, if you want to get a grip on what needs to be done now, uh, it, the, there is a tradition in economics of uh, which was what brought me into the field actually, of critical inquiry uh, and sort of a very broad spectrum analysis. And this, of course, this is Smith, this is Marx, this is Schumpeter, this is Keynes. This is Thorstein Veblen. This is my father, John Kenneth Galbraith. Uh, and uh, it's there. Uh, one can, one can uh, we don't have to be insecure about the foundation of the ideas that we have. They were, they were put forward by, by in, in very effective ways by past generations. Uh, and reading them uh, can give strength uh, uh, to the arguments that we need to make now. That's so. Uh, well, my Young Scholars Initiative are going to, I guarantee you, I'm going to show them that passage, what you just said, because I think they're, they're looking for direction. They can feel things are wrong. They want to be, what you might call, contributing to a change of course and a different way of seeing. And uh, I think your advice, grounded in the history of economic thought and the relationship between institutions challenges, events, and the evolution of ideas, uh, something your father wrote about quite a lot, uh, is very, very much, how would I say, that it's, I think that's where the, the nourishment 
where the nutrition is in becoming an economist today. Sure. Let's, yeah. let's, let's, let, let's hope that that's, that, that's the case. Well, thank you. And uh, let's uh, sign off and we'll come back again in a few months and take the temperature again. Okay. I appreciate your Great. time today and uh, try to stay warm down there in Texas. It's not hard to stay warm at the moment. I checked my uh, outdoor thermometer and with the sun on it, it was over 100 degrees a second ago, Ooh. an hour ago. But of Ooh. course, it's not that hot outside. It's about 80. <laughs> it's wow. An 80, wow. An 80 degree Fahrenheit swing in the course of the last week. Thank you, Jamie. Okay, very good. Good to see you, Rob. Nice to chat with you. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking but I'll know my song well before I start singing.